God's power and majesty are on display through His mighty acts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We know this. The Bible tells us that this happened through the Word of His power. He spoke the world into existence. And when you fast forward to the end of the Bible, you read that the Bible tells us that God will make all things new. And as we read through the pages of Scripture, we see that God is redeeming a people for Himself. He's rescuing His people from perils. He is causing the sun to stand still. He's parting the seas. He's guiding His people. And He's raising people to life. We see all of these types of powerful acts of God throughout His Word, the Bible. One of the mighty acts of God is that we live as we live God is making us new. God is making us new through His glorious power. He is doing this. Take a look at Romans chapter 6. We're going to read a large section of this context, verses 1-11, through 11, where God's Word says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and you must consider yourselves alive to God in Christ Jesus. Our attention this morning will be on verses 4 and 5. Verse 4 provides for us a purpose statement. Why did God join us together with Christ? Why were we placed into His death? Why has that death of Christ been attributed to us? Why is it that we were in Christ when He hung on the cross? In Christ when He was buried? In Christ when He was raised? In Christ when He ascended? In Christ at His right hand of the Father's session? Why are we in Christ? Well, He tells us in verse 4, in order that... That's a purpose clause. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now this is not a command in verse 4. 
This is, he's still speaking. Now this is a subjunctive. This is a, a, a mood of possibility. The, the reason we've been placed into Christ is so that the end result is that we might walk in newness of life. He's not telling us to walk in newness of life. He says, you've been placed in so that this would happen. He's still talking very much about the works of God, not commanding yet. He will get to the commands in verses 12 and following. But here he's telling us what God's power does. We have been placed into Jesus Christ in order that we might walk in newness of life. An essential ingredient of this discussion is this. What in this passage produced the resurrection of Jesus Christ? What in verse 4 specifically produced the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Let's look at it. We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, how? By the glory of the Father. That is an important phrase. It's essential to the resurrection of Christ and it is essential to the newness of life. So we have to understand this a little bit. And to to do that, we want to look at a couple of passages of Scripture. Take a look, first of all, at John 11. The Gospel of John, chapter 11. You will recognize, I trust, this context in John chapter 11. Jesus had some close associates, not just the disciples, but He had some families that He was particularly close with. And the one that we're about to read about, we're all familiar with, He was very close to this family and we're familiar with the context that Lazarus was sick. And so there's, here's where we want to pick it up in John 11, beginning in verse 3. So the sisters, that'd be Martha and Mary, the sisters sent to him, that's Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. Pause there. Now you know the rest of the story, don't you? It did lead to death. But it didn't ultimately lead to death. Verse uh, verse 4. It is for, what does it say? The glory of God. Come on, ready? It is for, say it with me, the glory of God. This illness doesn't lead to death. This illness leads to the glory of God. Go on a little further with me so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Look down at verse 11. After saying these things, He said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to Him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that He meant taking a rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus, has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. This is an interesting scenario, isn't it? Now, we've read it many times. Maybe you've had listened to sermons on it many times. But when we come to the Scriptures, we should always read it with fresh eyes. Jesus said, it's good that I wasn't there. Because if I were there, I would have prevented this death. But that's not the purpose of this death. This death was for the glory of God. Something must be on display that you need to see, that, that others need to see, and quite frankly, that needs to be recorded for us. 
And so let's take a look a little further at what does take place. Verse 21 and following, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am. I am the resurrection. I am the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Here's the important question. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you know this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And so we know what's about to happen, but Jesus, before it happens, says, I want you to know, I don't just produce life, I am life. I don't just raise people from the dead, I am the resurrection of the dead. I am. Glorious words. Ego, I me, me. It means it's, it's equivalent of saying Yahweh, the self-existent One. This is a glorious text. The glory of the Father. The glory of God. This is what we're trying to understand. And the scenario that's set before us is the death of a loved one. And Jesus says, I want you to see the glory of God on display. I am... I am the resurrection. Look down at verses 38 and following. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to Him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for He has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed... Will you read with me now? you would see the glory of God. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up His eyes and said, Father, I thank You that You have heard Me. I know that You always hear Me, but I say, said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that You sent Me. And when He had said these things, He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The men man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Listen carefully. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, what does it say? Believed in him. What, what is this glory of God on display? It's the power to give life. The power to overcome death. The power not just to give temporary life, but the power to give eternal life. This is what Jesus puts on display in the resurrection of Lazarus. I am the resurrection. I am the life. You believe me. Your whole future is different. The glory of God on display through the majestic power of God. Let, let's look at a couple of verses. They'll be on the screens to my left and right. In 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 4. 
For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the, what does it say? Power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we live with him. How do we live? By the power of God. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is, is praying for the church that they would have an understanding of God, that they would understand the, the calling that they have, that they would understand the inheritance that they have, and that they would understand God's power. That's the, the third part of what he was praying for them. And that's what we want to read in verses 19 and 20 of Ephesians 1. Listen to what he says. I want you to know what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might. Well, what's a good display of this? That He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand uh, in the heavenly places. What do, we, what do we recognize? We're seeing that the glory of the Father is a display of majestic power. The glory of the Father is a display of majestic, glorious power. So we have to inject that back into Romans chapter 6 because this is what he's saying. Head back to Romans 6 for a moment. He's saying that Jesus was raised from the dead by this glorious, majestic power of the Father. Verse 4, we were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power or the majestic power of the Father. Do we see what the cause of Jesus' resurrection was? Why is it important? It's important because at, with, at the very least, it's implied that the second half of verse 4 is also due to the glorious power of the Father. So look at verse 4 again. We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as in the same way Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too by that same power might walk in newness of life. It's at least implied that this newness of life that is called for, that is demonstrated, that is resulting from being joined together with Jesus Christ comes from the glorious power of God. In other words, my friend, if you try with all your might, all your resources, all your efforts, all your wisdom to produce this newness of life, you will find yourself miserably failing and frustrated. We need the glorious, majestic power of Almighty God to produce newness within us the same way that it produced life from the crucified, buried Lord. God's divine power. Paul has been unfolding for us how the Gospel not only deals with the penalty of our sin in chapters 4 and 5, but also the power of sin in chapter 6. The Gospel is, as you well know, the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, the Gospel, in it, the Gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from saving faith to sanctifying faith. From one kind of faith that brings us unto salvation to a faith that leads towards sanctification. God's Gospel produces this sanctification. God's Gospel declares us righteous 
through faith in Jesus Christ. And God's Gospel displays God's righteousness in us through faith in Jesus Christ. Last week, we discussed our union with Jesus Christ and how that union with Jesus Christ is at the heart of our confident expectation of our eternal life. Because we have been united together with Jesus Christ for eternity, we know this. Our sin is forgiven. We have been declared righteous. We are not in bondage to sin or death. We are under the dominion of our exalted Head, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have new life. This we know because we've been united together with Jesus Christ. Our union produces these things. We've been given new life to walk in a new way. We've been given new life to walk in a new way. This is what he's telling us. He's given us new life to walk in a new way in verse 4. In verse 5, look at what he says. For if we have been united with Him, that is a perfect tense. You love my tense talks. Perfect tense is something that took place in the past. It's a completed action, but it has continuing results. We have been united with Christ. If this is true, if we have been united with Christ and it continues to this day, there's also a future element in verse 5. We shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. So we have this confidence about the future. What, because of what God has accomplished in the past, we have confidence about what's to take place in the future because of what God has accomplished and what God guarantees. The believer has been set free to live in an entirely new way. That's what we want to see this morning. First of all, well, I'm going to start by saying there are nine points. Nine points. But we'll do this in a rather succinct fashion in each one, so we'll see how we do. First of all, we are a new creation. Now, we talked about that last week, so we're only going to just touch on it for a moment. We are a new creation. This is true individually, isn't it true? Like when you turn from your sin and you turn to Jesus Christ, you have been given a new You've been made a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So we know this individual element. There's also a corporate element to this new creation. Take a look at Ephesians chapter 2. And verse 10 is where we'll start. We mentioned this earlier in our children's lesson. And this we is not an individual we. It's not the royal we. This is the collective we. We were dead. We have been made alive because of the grace of God. Verses uh, 4 and then 8 and 9. Verse 10. For we, the church of God, are His workmanship. We have been created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we, the church, should walk in them. Look down at verses 14-16. through 16. He says, For He Himself is our, the church, peace, who has made us both, this is Jews and Gentiles, made us both one, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one 
new man in the place of the two, soul making peace, and that he might reconcile us, Jews and Gentiles, both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. We are a new creation. This is what happens through the the majestic power of God in making us new. We're a new creation. Secondly, we have a new heart. A new heart. We all like a good good heart conversation. Now we're not talking about cardiac conditions. We're not talking about having to go to see your cardiologist, having an EKG, or any of those wonderful things. We're talking about a spiritual heart. We're not talking about the thumper in your chest that does nothing for you spiritually. It just pumps your blood oxygenates you because it pushes the blood through your lungs and all that good stuff. I'm not going to get into that. All right. Nonetheless, we, God has given us a new heart, but we're not talking about the physical heart. If you have heart problems before your conversion, you'll have heart problems after your conversion. He's given us a new spiritual heart. Take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, take a look at verses 1 and following. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? In other words, he's saying, before we come and visit you, do you need some authentication that we are actually apostles? And the reason that this is um, easy for him to say as a way to drive a point home is because they knew him. They don't need anyone to to write a letter of commendation. They they have already seen and experienced his ministry. Look at verse 2. You yourselves are our letter of commendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you know that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tables of stone, but on tables of human hearts. Such is the confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who made us sufficient to be ministers of what? A new covenant, not with the letter, but the Spirit. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Well, what, what does this look like? Now, look down at verses 15 and following. Yes, to this day when Moses is read, speaking about Old Testament Jews, those that have not come to faith in Christ, when Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Why? Is, is the Word of God powerful? Yeah? Is the Word of God sharp? Is it living? Is it dynamic? Does the Word of God effectively work? Does it, does it change people? Of course, it does all of these things. But not when there's a veil over the heart. Until a, an, a person's eyes are opened, like Lydia's eyes were opened, the Lord opened her eyes until those eyes are opened. So it's just, you're reading, you're reading words. You might understand what those words mean. You just don't understand the spiritual intent of those things. But when the Spirit does something, when you receive a new heart, the veil is removed. Verse 16, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being what? Transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So we have this powerful working of God giving us a new heart. And that new heart gives us the ability to understand the spiritual intent 
of the Scriptures because it's not just the new heart. So oh, I have a new heart, now I can understand. The new heart and the Spirit working in me through the new covenant, the words of God. God changes us. He makes us alive. He's given us a new heart. The reference uh, to the new covenant and we don't have time to get into all the implications about how it works, but we are related to that new covenant. This blood is the new covenant in my blood. Um, it's full outworking as one day in the future when God brings all of His people into saving relationship with Himself. But in, in Ezekiel 36, 26, listen to what He says. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'm going I'm I'm to give you something new. Spiritual life. How does this happen? The powerful, majestic working of Almighty God. That's how Jesus was raised from the dead. And that's how we are brought to newness of life. It's a glorious, rejoicing truth. Let's head a little bit further. We have a new family. Because of what God has done, we have a new family. Look at Romans chapter 8. You can trace this concept of newness in many ways, but we want to just see some glimpses of this newness of life that God has given to us through His majestic, powerful working. We have a new family. Romans 8, beginning in verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of what? Adoption as sons. Sons of who? Well, I used to be a son of Belial. Son of Beelzebub, a son of the world, a son of the darkness, a son of Satan. That's where I was. We're born that way, at enmity with God. But He has made us sons. And as this a spirit of adoption comes upon us as sons, the Spirit Himself cries out in us and cries out through us, Abba, Father, we have a relationship with a glorious, almighty, holy God. Because God adopts us into His family. We have a new family. Verse 16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. We have a new family. And you know what, brothers and sisters? We have a new home. We have a new home. Look at Philippians chapter 3. I don't know how often this old hymn comes into your head. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. You know the rest of it. I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Well, every day that goes by, my friend, do you not feel like more and more of an alien and a stranger in this place? This place is absolutely insanely crazy. Everything is upside down and backwards. It's not getting better, it's getting worse. But this isn't our home. We are strangers pilgriming on our way to that heavenly city. We are seeking that city whose author and builder is God. And look at what he says here in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power 
the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We have a new home. So you may, you may have a nice house and you want to make it comfortable. You should. Clean it. Care for it. When your cabinets are on, a little crooked, try to straighten them. When the kids make another scratch, paint it. If your backyard looks a little bit long in the tooth, try to put some grass seed down. If that's your thing, if you don't want to, blow away the dirt or whatever you have to do. It's great. We have nice things. We make us comfortable. I like to be uncomfortable, but are you living for this stuff? You know, you can care for your car all you want. It's going to get rusty. You live in New England. You move to Florida, maybe it won't be rusty, but you'll have some other problem. The humidity will get you and your stuff and the big palmetto bugs. This world is not my home. I have such great anticipation of what will be one day. And so many of our brothers and sisters have already gone. And they, in, you know, before they left, were thinking, I'm going to miss my family. I'm going to miss this. I'm going to miss this. And then they got into the presence of the Lord and all that other stuff just went away. Don't miss anything. Don't miss anything. They'll be happy probably to see you at some point. But they're in the presence of what they were made for. Who they were made for. This world has got nothing for us. Our citizenship is in heaven. And this, my friends, comes through the power of a majestic God that has given us new life. Isn't it glorious? A new identity and a new life. Let's go a little further. We have a new way. We have a new way. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. We have a new way. In Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 19, God's Word says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that He opened for us through the veil, that is, through His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. We, because of the powerful work of Jesus Christ, we have access not to bring a lamb and not to have the high priest go in to the holy place and the high priest go in to the holy of holies once per year to sprinkle the blood on the altar. We don't need that. Jesus has fulfilled the law. And once for all, He has provided access, entrance, by a new and living way for us to enter into the very presence of the God of the universe. This is ours. This is ours. Because of the glorious power of the Father, we have new life. Number six, we have a new song. We have a new song. Take a look at Revelation chapter 5. While you're turning, I want to remind you of the words of the psalmist in Psalm 40. He 
put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Let that roll around in your mind for just a minute. Is that new song that God has placed in you resounding so that people around you in the workplace, in your neighborhood, in your home, in the church, see, experience, understand a glimpse of the glory of God and come underneath His power by fearing Him? Man, if that's not a powerful conviction about the way that our new life is expressed, I don't know what is. Are people being impacted by the new song that God has put in your life? We're in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9. In this scene, it's, it's always, not always, but regularly in the back of my mind. And sometimes it comes to the forefront. I cannot wait. And I think you're the same as me in this. I cannot wait until that day when I'm in this place where this scene is taking place and I see with my eyes what I have longed for in my soul. Listen to what he says in Revelation 5.9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, O Lord, to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you have ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language, and every people, and every nation, you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This is the new song. This is the new song. We're going to sing it one day in heaven. We get a glimpse of what the Apostle John saw in his vision of of heaven. These redeemed coming around the throne and angels around the throne singing praises to the Almighty Redeemer who gave His life to ransom people, people, people. All different. None worthy. He's worthy. A new song. A new song. And it should be the taste of our mouths. It should be the affection of our mind today. A new song. This is the part of that newness of life we've been given. We've also been given a new name. Revelation chapter 2, Jesus is speaking and these letters are going forth to the churches. We're going to look at just two verses, one in chapter 2, one in chapter 3, to see Jesus discussing, telling the church about this new name. Look at what it says in chapter 2 and verse 17. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. Now we know that the one who conquers in, from 1 John is the one who has faith that overcomes the world, right? Faith overcomes the world. He who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I don't know what that is. Implication. There's some hidden manna in that Ark of the Covenant, right? I don't know. But something to eat, something to sustain, something that will maybe make you never hunger again. Hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone. Well, that's pretty cool. My kids love looking for stones. But the stone itself is not what's so important. It's with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Look at chapter 3. Chapter 3 and verse 12. 
The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Look at chapter 22. Revelation 22. Verses 3 and 4 of Revelation 22. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him, and they will see His face. Just pause and chew on that for a moment. His servants will worship Him, and they will see His face. And His name will be on their foreheads. His name. We have a new name. This comes from the power of our Almighty Father. And this is part of that newness of life. Oh, I don't, I don't um, work, you know, I don't do my, my skills for the name on the back of my journey, but, jersey, but the one on the front. So you know, my name, my personal name is on the back and my team name is on the front. This is way better than that. This is way better than that. We're talking about having the name a name, a new name. The name for which all the families of the earth have been named. Ephesians chapter 3. It's beautiful. It's the name of God. The Father. He's given us this name. We don't know all the implications, all the elements of it. There's a lot of uh, studies that have been done on this topic. Just, just know this. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not even about us. It's about Him newness of life living for him number eight we have a new way so we're in revelation i want you to turn to two passages we, can you do that you have your uh dexterity in your fingers first peter chapter four is one of the passages we're going to do that second first peter chapter four but you're coming from revelation so i figured you'd find that first and romans chapter seven we have a new way so you say well Didn't you already say a new way? Yes, I did. That was point number five. But that is a new way into the presence of the Lord. This is a different new way. This is a new way of life. A new way into the presence of the Lord. That was five. This is number eight. A new way of life. Romans chapter 7 in verse 6. Listen to what God's Word says. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. A new way of the Spirit. Not laws, not rules, not regulations, not checklists. The new way of the Spirit. 1 Peter chapter 4 also speaks of this new way. Listen to what he says. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. That's, that's a key to the new way, is to think, think like Christ thinks, to, to, to come under, under the authority of God. Remember? Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And this is coming from the second person of the triune Godhead. God, eternally God. Equally God, forever God. 
And he placed himself under the Father. We arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. For whatever, uh, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for our human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. I've spent enough, wasted enough time living in sensuality, spent enough time, wasted enough time living in passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatries with respect to these things. They're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. God has given us a new way of life. He's given us a new way of life. Look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 19. For through the law I died to the law. Why? Why? So that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. But Christ who is living lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. And so he's talking about this new way. There's a new way of life. It's not by living my affections. It's by living out the affections of God. Which leads us to our ninth and final point. You didn't think we were going to make it, but you were wrong. We have new affections. Let's taste a little sampling of it. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verses 9 and 10, listen to what God's word says. You're familiar with this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people. You are a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Jesus spoke about these new affections in Matthew 6, 19-21, where He said this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Listen, for where your treasure is, there your passions, your affections, your will your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your will will be also. There your heart will be also. Take a look at Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Told you you were going to have to turn. Told you you were going to have to get busy. Buckle your seatbelts. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and following. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us what do you mean training us exercising us chastising us disciplining us training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and also training us well what's doing this training the grace of God that has appeared and brought salvation. It trains us to, to, to run from ungodliness and worldly passions and to run to self-controlled, upright, godly living. When? Someday. Someday. No! Now! In the present age! 
while we are doing what? While we're waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior who gave Himself for us to do what? To redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession. Will you read the rest of the verse with me? Who are zealous for good works. Zeal! Zealous! Passionate! Affections! For what? Stuff that's going to just rot away? We all struggle with those kinds of things. But the grace of God has appeared to train us. To train us to say, those things don't last. Those things don't matter. Here's what matters. Do this! It'll last eternally. The things that God does in us will never be disappointing to us. Ephesians chapter 5, last verse to turn to. Ephesians 5. We're talking about new affections, but we're not talking about trying to produce new affections. We're talking about the, the glorious power of God producing these new affections. We're not talking about finding a way to finally have a hunger and thirst for God. Because if you're trying to find it, you're not going to get there. The only way a hunger and thirst for God is going to come is when God brings that hunger and thirst. He gives us newness of life. And it's because of our union with Jesus Christ. I've been placed into Christ in His death. So my old affections don't control me any longer. He's given me something new, fresh, and real. And He can make me hunger and thirst for Him in a way that I never could on my own. Listen to what he says here in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But here's what you must do. You must be filled with the Spirit. You must be controlled by the Spirit. You must come underneath the authority of the Spirit of God. Okay. Surrender my will. Yield my will. This is the equivalent, my brothers and sisters, of what the Old Testament says over and over. The fear of the Lord. God, You are the authority and I am Your subject. I come underneath You and I need You. I want to do what it is You want for me to do. Come underneath God's authority. Be filled with the Spirit. That's what He tells us. And then, in verses 19, 20, and 21, He tells us what God will do. He tells us what God the Spirit will do. Look at what it says. Addressing one another in Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now just here's a little little tidbit of grammar. There's two commands in this passage. Verse 18. There's a prohibition. Don't be drunk. And there's an admonition, be filled. The rest are ings. You know what an ing is? It's a participle. Participles don't stand for themselves. They cling for their life. They cling for their life to some main verb. The be filled with the Spirit tells us what we're told to do. Verses 19, 20, and 21, these ings, 
They're telling you what God is going to do. These are the results of being filled with the Spirit. You will be singing. You will be making melody in your heart. You will be giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be submitting to one another. He's not giving us a listing of commands. He gives us two. Don't be drunk, but be controlled by the Spirit. And I'll do the rest. So when I'm not filled with joy in my heart, when I'm not filled with thanksgiving in my heart, when I'm not filled with a willingness to surrender, submit to other people, don't start with the action of uh, rejoicing. Don't start with the action of thanksgiving. Don't start with the action of submission. Start with the action of letting God, the Spirit, control your life and let Him do what you could never do. Real thanksgiving that comes from the Spirit. There's joy that comes as the Spirit controls our lives. When we walk in the Spirit, we don't fulfill the lusts of our flesh. The result of being filled with the Spirit is love, joy, peace, gentleness, long-suffering. I messed it up. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. I do know the fruit of the Spirit. These things flow out of my life and they flow out of your life when you're filled with the Spirit. This is the new affections. They come from God and they come through us. If they're not coming through us, it's because I'm not rightly related to the one who produces these affections within us. We have been placed into Christ that our old affections would not control us any longer and that we might, as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we also, by the glory of the Father, might walk in newness of life. He's given us a new way. So Paul in Romans 6 is telling us of this newness of life for the believer and he ties that newness to the powerful, glorious work of God. You and I, you and I, today, can put God's glory on display. That is a precious, precious gift. When a believer is under the control of the Spirit, there will be evidence of God's fruitful character. This is a work of God, not of man. And in it, He is glorified. Whether therefore you eat, or whether therefore you drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We need you and we want you to produce these affections, these righteous demonstrations of this new way of life that we have benefited from because we've been placed into Christ and you have displayed your power in raising him from the dead and you display your power in giving us newness of life. Minister in us and through us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.